thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. Your word is our life. Your word is our strength. Your word gives us direction, oh God. And without your word, we are nothing. That is why, oh God, this morning we are so excited, oh God, that one of your children is going to present your word to us. Lord, we pray that you will speak through her, oh God, that every word that will come forth from her mouth will be words coming from you. And every word we meet the need, the specific needs within this room that you have sent it to meet. There are people who are not in this room now, oh God, who will either watch us online or listen later on. I pray that the same power of the world that will descend in this room will reach them. And we deal with every issue that needs to be dealt with. Bless us, oh God, again this morning through your or your daughter, Amanda, and Jehovah God. After now, let everyone have a testimony that you are here with us this morning through Amanda. Thank you, Father Lord. In Jesus' mighty name, we have prayed. Amen. Bless you. Amen. Good morning, church. What a difference a week makes. This time last week, we were boiling in here, and now we're trying to close the doors and windows. Um, so last week we started with Mark 1 to 8, and I'm going to continue from when that stopped. Um, I'll be teaching on Mark 1, 9 to 13. But before we jump into that, I just thought I'll give a brief overview of the Gospels, who it's for and why. So as we know, we've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they were all written to cover four different aspects of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Each gospel writer wrote their gospel from a different perspective. And in a way, they wrote it to a different audience as well. So Matthew is the gospel that is historically acclaimed to be the gospel for the Jews. Matthew was writing to the Jews. Um, for those that understand the Old Testament and his, his focus was showing them that Jesus is the Messiah, the King that they've been waiting for. Luke, on the, on the other hand, is it's the longest gospel. Actually, it's the longest book in the, Old, in the New Testament. It's very historical, journalistic, and his focus was showing the humanity of Jesus. That's what Luke wanted to achieve. John focused on the divinity of Jesus from the beginning. He's telling us that Jesus is God. And Mark, as we are going to be looking at over the next few months, is the gospel that really wants us to see Jesus not just as the son of God, but also as the suffering servant, the one that was sent. Um, his was written to a wide audience and it's an action gospel. So I'm really looking forward to next week, no, two weeks from now when we get to read Mark um, as a story because it's the gospel that reads more as a story. There's a lot of doing, things happen in the gospel of Mark and it's the one gospel that records more miracles um, of Jesus than any of the other gospel. So before I jump into the teaching in the passage, I've asked Easy to please read Mark 1, 9 to 13. Do you want the mic? 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And when a voice came from heaven, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Amen. Thank you. So although it's only five verses, it's very short. But in those five verses, there are so many significant things that happen. Those five verses are packed full with things that I'm hoping with the time I've got, I'm going to be able to unpack. But there are two key things we will look at. The first one is the baptism of Jesus. Why? Why was he baptized? And the other part of the verse talks about the fasting and tempting of Jesus, so the 40 days that he spent in the wilderness. So I'll start with the baptism. So what was it and why was Jesus baptized? Um, very quickly, I'll tell you that baptism, as we know, symbolizes the death of the old self and the birth of new life in Jesus. And that when people are baptized, they are immersed in water, which reflects the idea of their sins being washed away and then a new life begins. So that's what baptism does. Now, we see that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, who was a prophet, and he came to fulfill the prophetic announcement of Israel's resurrection, um, restoration. So even before he baptized Jesus, he was already doing the baptizing of repentance, which was in line with, some, with um, events from the Old Testament, where He's the voice that's crying out in the wilderness. He's calling for repentance. He's baptizing the Israelites. He's doing that washing away that is symbolic of what happened in the Old Testament as well. So just as the Israelites were led through the waters of the Jordan under Joshua's leadership, we see the people once again being led through waters under um, John's baptism. As they pass through the waters, they repent of their sins similar to what happened in Exodus. And that is kind of what John is, is sent to do. And then we now see Jesus come, and Jesus is also going through that baptismal water as well. One of the reasons that we know that this is really important, it's something that is so significant to have happened, is that all four Gospels carry this baptism account. It's quite unusual for us to see um, an event that happens in all four gospels. So we know the baptism and the testing is one of them and the death and resurrection of Jesus is another. So why was Jesus baptized? The gospel of Mark doesn't give us that straightforward answer, but we find the answer in the account in Matthew. Matthew 3.13, which is where we start to see um, the baptism account play out. It tells us at the end, that um, John is asking Jesus, why are you coming to me to be baptized? I should be the one baptizing you. And Jesus says to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus tells us that he's being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. But what does that mean? What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? 
in order for us to understand that, we're going to have to go back into the, New, into the Old Testament a little bit. So in the Old Testament, before you can become a priest, there are certain things that you had to do. And Jesus being baptized by John is that foreshadow of the priest that he's going to become. The Bible tells us that he's a high priest. And this is him now fulfilling that legal requirement to be brought into the order of Melchizedek. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. And in those days, three things have to happen before you were, for lack of a better word, ordained into a priesthood. The first thing is that you had to be washed with water. The second thing is that you had to be anointed with oil. And there was a requirement that you had to be at least 30 years old. We see that in the book of Numbers. And in the baptism of Jesus, we see these three things happen. He's washed with water, so he's um, fully immersed. The anointing that comes on him is the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. And um, in the account of Luke um, 3.23 tells us that Jesus was about 30 years old when he started his ministry. So those three things have happened. And that is... The legal one of the legal requirements that he had to fulfill so that he could step in to that um, kingly priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. So now that I've set that scene a bit, I'm just going to dig a little deeper into verse 9 to 11 and show us three key things that the baptism signifies. So um, 9 says, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan. And straight away, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, thou art my beloved son in whom am I well pleased. So the first thing is, If we go back to Genesis 1, the Bible tells us that the earth was without form, the earth was void, there was darkness upon the face of the earth, and the spirit of the Lord hovered. And then verse 2 tells us, um, day 2, we see God separating firmament. So the firmament, um, so there's a divide, isn't it? So there's waters above and there's water below, and the heaven becomes that separation. So if we want to think about biblical cosmology for lack of a better word what separates us from the what separates us down here from where god is up there is the heavenly ocean that we call of the bible calls a firmament and so when jesus is baptized mark says that those heavenly waters that heavenly firmament was torn open that word turn open um the greek word is schism and it appears as well at the end of Mark's gospel where Jesus dies on the cross. And we see in Mark 15, it says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last and the veil of the temple was torn open. So there's another tearing open. It's the same word that's used at his baptism. That is the same word that's used at his, um, at, at his crucifixion. Now, that veil that was torn open is as symbolic as his baptism because it's, it was what separated the most holy place from the rest of the world. And when Jesus was baptized, we see that the heavens as well is split apart. That signifies that by his future death, we now have access to God. 
that access to heaven, access to the holy place is made available to all of us that are baptized in him, which is why baptism is so important for us in our Christian walk. So Jesus becomes that firmament that we can ascend to God. And this is what, this is one of the first things that his baptism signifies, that tearing apart of the heaven. The second thing that comes to mind when we think about what Mark is trying to teach us, and as short as, I must say, as short as Mark's gospel is, it is packed full with meaning, and it's, it foreshadows a lot of things that happened in the Old Testament, because we know Jesus came to fulfill the law, and we see that play out in the New Testament when we dig deep into what um, the gospel of Mark is teaching us. So the second thing that comes to mind when we think about the baptism of Jesus is, Genesis 8 talks about Noah's Ark. It talks about the flooding that happened, how the old world was completely covered with water and the only thing that was safe was the Ark. And when the rain stops falling, Noah sends out a dove. The first time he sends out the dove, the dove comes back. The Bible tells us that there was no rest for the sole of her feet, so it was still very wet. The second time he sends out the dove, it returns with an olive leaf. But the third time that Noah sends out that dove, the dove doesn't come back. It never returns. But then we get to Jesus' baptism and the dove is back. This is the first time we see that dove return. The spirit that was brooding over the heavens right from the beginning of Genesis 1 is that same spirit that's brooding. And then when the heavens is torn open, the dove descends. This is significant because we know that the Bible tells us that, um, I, I mean, what Mark is saying is that Jesus is our new creation. He's the new land. He's where the olive tree grows. He's where the birds of the air can come and make their nest in their branches. That's Matthew 13, 32. That Jesus is a foreshadow of Noah's ark. He's a kind of Noah's ark that carries us into the new world. But we know that he's all those things and much more. So even in those short verses, if we step back into the Old Testament, we can see that there is a direct correlation between, between what happened at the beginning of time and what is now happening in the beginning of the New Testament, which is Jesus now going into ministry. This is how he's going into um, his, um, his, his newly ordained role, the start of his ministry. The third thing, which is the most exciting thing for me that we see uh, happens is this is the first time that the Trinity is revealed in the New Testament, that it's explicitly revealed. And Mark is portraying Jesus even from the beginning. Um, he's portraying this about Jesus even from the beginning, but we start to see the climax of it where we see God the Father, we see God the Son, and we see God the Holy Spirit at the baptism and we have this explosion of knowledge that was hidden from us, that was hidden and concealed in the New Testament, being explicitly revealed, um, I beg your pardon, in the Old Testament, being explicitly revealed in the New Testament, that for the first time we can see that distinction, that Jesus the Son is being baptized, but then we hear the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, and we see the Holy Spirit who is brooding now descending as the dove that's returning um, in the way that he was absent in the Old Testament after Noah's Ark. And so it's befitting that at that moment of Christ's baptism, at the new dawn of a new creation, 
that all three persons of the Godhead is there. It's almost as though they are saying, we're in this together and we're moving forward together. Now you can see all three of us and you can identify with all three of us. And so in conclusion, what I would say in regards to the baptism is that for all those of us that are baptizing, we're baptized into the Tryon name, the baptism of Jesus is our baptism. It is something that is really important as Christians for us to do. And Jesus was baptized not because he needed to repent. John was crying out, repent. So it wasn't that Jesus had sinned that he needed to be, um, to be cleansed, but instead he was cleansing the waters, not to get to heaven, but to tear heaven open so that all those of us that are united with him can step into that heavenly place with him. So if you haven't been baptized, I really do encourage you. We've got a wonderful opportunity next week, Sunday. And that's just a plug for baptism um, for, for those of us that haven't been baptized as something that we really think about. Okay, so that's the first part. So just to recap, reasons for Jesus' baptism. Yes, he fulfilled that legal requirement. We know that he's our high priest. Um, he was officially announced as the Messiah. It was the time where he was officially declared publicly as the Son of God. And he identified with man's shortcomings in doing something that he wasn't really supposed to do. In him being baptized, he's identifying with us as man and setting an example for us, but not because he's a sinner, but because he was showing his humanity as well. So the other parts of um, the five verses, the first part talks about his baptism and the Bible tells us immediately after the spirit of the Lord leads him into the wilderness to be tested. It wasn't Jesus' idea, it was his father, it was the Holy Spirit that led him, it even drives him. In fact, there is an urgency with which he comes out of the water and he's baptized and now he's in the wilderness being tested. And what would occur in that wilderness, um, the Judean desert, over the next 40 days, it would have such eternal ramifications that aside from his crucifixion, this was probably the most um, critical experience in Jesus' entire walk, those three years. He's confronted by his greatest adversary, um, which is the devil, as we know, at the time when he's physically weakest. Usually, if you say to people, um, how many times was Jesus tested? How many times was Jesus tested? Three? Exactly. So some people will say he was tested three days, but he wasn't tested three days. The Bible tells us that he was tested for 40 days continuously. The devil wasn't stopping. The three accounts that we have recorded were recorded probably as a summary of the 40 days that had happened, but those three accounts show, um, even though it's not recorded in Mark, they show us the, a summary of all the tests that we would ever probably go through in life. We're talking about the loss of the flesh, the loss of the eyes, and the loss of power. The devil has no new tricks. Every single test in our deception that we're ever going to go through would come under those three umbrellas. And probably that was, the why, that was the reason why those three were recorded. But he was tested for 40 days continuously whilst he was in the wilderness, not eating, not um, spending time with God, fasting at his weakest point. Again, this testing of Jesus in the wilderness, um, 
the backdrop to that starts in the Old Testament. There's a lot of things that we will start to see happen in the Gospels that are a foreshadow of things that have already happened because, as we said, Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill everything that had been spoken and had been prophesied about him. And because of time, I'm not going to read all of it, but the backdrop for that is in Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 to 8. And the key verses for emphasis is verses 2 to 3. And I'll just read that quickly. It says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order that you in order to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his command. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And then he goes on to say a bit more. But in Jesus being in the wilderness, it was to prepare him for what's to come. He identified with the Israelites in what they had already endured. So the 40 years that they had in the desert being tested, he did it in 40 days. But unlike the Israelites that had, you know, different, different outcomes and different responses to their testing, we see Jesus as that perfect sacrifice, as that perfect savior that came out victorious in his season of testing, which is why it was one of the most important things that he had to go through. But the number 40 is significant, you know, we see it a number of times in the Bible that 40 represents a period of trial, a period of testing, a period of cleansing and refinement. There's so many things in the Bible that happen with that number 40. And Mark tells us how long Jesus was tested, um, possibly to encourage the, the readers to connect with Old Testament stories as well, especially the wilderness days. So let's just look at some 40s in the Bible. We know that in the Bible, we talked about how um, about Noah's Ark. The Bible tells us it rained 40 days and 40 nights. We know that um, Moses um, wandered in his own wilderness for 40 years before he went to go and rescue the Israelites. So that was his own time for training. Um, we know that the Israelites as well, like I said, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. The Bible tells us that Joshua and the other spies, they returned out of after 40 days of spying the land. The Philistines, when they are taunting the Israelites, Goliath to be precise, the Bible tells us that he did that over 40 days. Um, Jonah is another example. He, he's coming and he's proclaiming 40 days that Nineveh will be overthrown. That was the word that the Lord had given him. We also see when it comes to fasting, that Elijah fasted 40 days, Moses fasted 40 days. Actually, Elijah's fasting is quite similar to what Jesus went through because he's the only other person that the Bible records was ministered to by angels in the same way Jesus was ministered to by angels. And after Jesus raised from the dead, after his resurrection, the Bible tells us that he remained on earth another 40 days before he ascended into heaven. So 40 is quite significant. If we wanted to do a quick foreshadow of the old into the New Testament again, um, we see that the Son of Man was tested in the wilderness. Um, and we can contrast that because Jesus is the second Adam. But if we contrast that to what the first Adam did, who was in this lush, beautiful garden of Eden and was tested, he didn't pass his test. But Jesus, on the other hand, who is the second Adam, was tested in a dry, barren land. And he passed his test. And it is in him that that Adamic curse is reversed and we now have eternal life. So it was so important that happened. 
Paul is the one who expands on that a bit more. He tells us in Romans 5, 17, that if by the trespass of one man, death reigned, and through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? It's important for us to know that God does not tempt anyone to sin. So this is not about God tempting us, but he allows us to be tested. The Bible has accounts of Jesus allowing us to be tested. We see that with Jesus. We see that with Job. Um, God allows us to be tested and to be evaluated. Okay. And now my notes are stuck together. So God tested our Savior's character through adversity in the wilderness, and he does the same thing with us today. We go through various tests in our lives, through trials and temptations. It helps us to grow in our faith and in our understanding of the work that we are called to do as servants of, the, um, as servants of his kingdom. And that when we are tested as well, it enables us to develop spiritual memory um, that helps us to depend on God, it helps us to depend on his word, and it helps us to overcome the difficulties that we face in life. So I just want to very quickly run through five reasons why Jesus was, test was tempted and what that means for us today. The first one is it demonstrated his humanity. The temptations that Jesus faced is proof that he was truly human. You have to be human to be tested. And the Bible tells us that because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So we do not have a high priest that doesn't identify with the things that we experience, but that those 40 days in the wilderness with him fasting, with him being, temp with him being tempted, it gives him that opportunity to identify with us so that when we go through it, we know that Jesus understands what we're going through. The second reason is that it was an example for us in the same way his baptism was an example for us. His fasting, um, his wilderness journey becomes an example for us to say that it's going to happen to us. We're going to go through those seasons as well, but we can do like Jesus did and we can come out victorious because he's already won that battle for us. So we're, we're going to walk like we walked and forever for anyone who claims to live in him, must walk in the way that Jesus did. The third thing is that it formed part of his personal dis dis um, discipleship. Um, it helped him to be disciplined um, and it helped him to learn obedience as well through the temptation. And um, Hebrew, Hebrew 5, um, 7 to 9 tells us that, particularly when we go to um, verse 9, it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So that suffering, not just what happened in the desert, but also what happened in the cross, on the cross, taught him obedience. And that once he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for those of us that obey him. The fourth thing is, um, aside from demonstrating his humanity, which is the first thing, is that he can sympathize with us. Um, the Bible says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. 
so that when we go through periods of fasting, when we go through periods of adversity, we know that Jesus can sympathize with us because he was weak, he was, um, he was tempted in every way. So those 40 days, there was every kind of tempting, every kind of testing that would have happened. That's why the Bible says he was tempted in every way, just as we are tempted in every way, yet he was without sin. And the fifth one is um, a prophetic fulfillment of something that God himself said would happen. Genesis 3.15, he said, the seed of a woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And this is one of those times that we see that happen, that in the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is bruising the head of the serpent, that even after being tested for those 40 days, he's able to tell the enemy at the end of it, go now because it is written, Jesus wins. From the beginning of the story, Jesus wins. To the end of the story, when he's crucified and he's resurrected, we see again that Jesus wins. So Jesus was tempted as we are. Temptations are not bad in themselves, but it's what we do with them that can help us turn to God or to turn away from God. When we are tempted, when we are tested, when we are in our seasons of weakness, like we see Jesus do, it becomes an example for us to turn to God rather than rely on our own resources. That is at this time more than, at those times more than ever, that we don't come away from church, we don't pull back, we don't pull away from everything that concerns God. Those, that's not the time for us to start saying, why is all this happening to me? Where is God in the midst of all of this? And there, there really is that temptation for us to say, if there was God, this shouldn't be happening to me. But actually, we see from the Bible that it's in those times that we should even be pulling closer to God. It's in those times that we should be digging deeper. It's in those times that we should be drawing nearer because God is the one that can help us through the most difficult seasons in our lives. One of the most important things that we can learn from the account of Jesus being tested, even though it's not recorded in the Mac account, it's certainly recorded in Matthew, is his response to his testing. Jesus, although he was human, he still had some divinity in him and there were ministering angels around him. When the enemy came and he was, you know, doing all the nonsense that he was doing, he could have just rebuked him in any other way. But what the Bible records for us that becomes an example for us to follow is that he rebuked him using scripture, using the word of God. That it is written becomes one of the most powerful things as Christians that we ever have to hold on to. And it's important for us to know what is written. Jesus could tell the enemy what is written. One is the word, but because he had also done some studying, we need to know as well. Plug for Grow Group. Yeah, this is why we need to be in Grow Group. This is why we need to be um, giving ourselves to the study of the word, meditating on the word, chewing on the word, knowing what the word says, so that when we too have our own temptations, we can say it is written because we know what is written. Three things he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's so important that we know that the way that we can fully live is not just by what we eat or don't eat. It's not by what we say. It's not by what we have. We live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is in the Bible. That is our food. 
physically, spiritually, in every sense of the word. I use the word physically because when we're fasting, the Bible becomes physical food for us to eat. That's what we eat. Um, spiritually, it is our food, even in seasons when we're not fasting, that for us to have successful lives as children of God, we have to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's interesting that it's, um, it's a word that was given in Deuteronomy. After they had even talked about manna, he's saying, yes, we've given you manna from heaven, but that's not how you live. That's not what you rely on. What you feed on is every word that comes out of the mouth of God. The second it is written, he says, is you shall not put the Lord your God to test. And I think this is quite important for us as children of God to know that we don't, we don't test God. God is not to be tested. That's not the purpose of testing. It's not for us to be, as Christians, to be, um, what's the word? Arrogant in our faith and to be reckless in our behavior. What the devil was asking Jesus to do was recklessness, to jump down. He says, after all, the Bible says, you know, the angels would take charge over you. And sometimes we have that invitation as, as, as children of God to be reckless. You know, you, you don't do things properly and then you expect the grace of God. It's like entering a car that you know the brake is not working and you're saying, oh, don't worry. I don't need to take it to the mechanic. I've got God. That's recklessness and that's testing God. And the Bible says we shouldn't do that. The last it is written, um, the Bible says you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is Jesus responding in Matthew 4.10. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written. And it means that the word of God is something that we can use to rebuke the devil, that we can command him with the word of God, that we can tell him, go out of our lives, go out of our situation, go out of our bodies. Even in something like sickness, we can say go sickness because it is written. Where there is hardship, you can say go hardship because it is written that the word of God becomes a command that we use, that we speak, that is life for us. So we see a demonstration of the dependence upon the word of God. Jesus is teaching us to depend upon the word of God. And like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm saying to all of us today, follow Jesus. Let's do what he did. He was baptized. He was tested. He was victorious in his testing because of his dependence on the word of God. And that's a call for all of us today to be dependent on the word of God. And so I'll stop there. <laughs>